Hello, and welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. April 2nd, 2023 marks the 25th anniversary of the historic Supreme Court ruling on Vreend v. Alberta. This ruling paved the way for human rights protection for sexual and gender minorities across Canada, ensuring that an entire community could access the same protections and recourse that so many others took for granted. 25 years on, it can be easy to forget that these rights were not always afforded to everyone. It is also easy to forget that without care, the rights and freedoms we enjoy today can be taken away a lot easier than we may think. To ensure a future of continued equality, it is important to know the past. Edmonton Community Foundation plays many roles in the community. We are the largest non-governmental funder of the charitable sector in the greater Edmonton area, providing more than $30 million a year to hundreds of charities. We are also a community convener, providing space for communities to tell their stories. This is why we're partnering with the Edmonton Queer History Project to present this series. Before we begin, we would like to note that the terms queer and trans and sexual and gender minorities are used in this series to refer to the 2SLGBTQI community as a whole. We acknowledge the great diversity within this community, and you can find more information about this in our show notes. And now, Freend versus Alberta. There was a huge backlash against our community that culminated with the bathhouse raids. The bath raids of, of Pisces in 1981. There were uh, 53 of us, I think, that were arrested. Uh, for many people, it was a dangerous time to grow up. It was to be visible. You didn't want to be noticed. and You didn't want to be known that you were gay. You could be fired from your job because you were gay. You could be refused employment on the basis that you were gay. Uh, you could be refused service in a restaurant because you were gay or lesbian. It, it came as no surprise to me that Alberta was one of the last provinces to have sexual orientation in their human rights legislation. The power and enthusiasm for human rights that was rekindled through the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982 and 85 just was a, was a wildfire in the law schools. I don't want to leave with an impression that it was just courts who were the only agents for change. And then when Breen's case came forward, they were ready. The community was ready. Welcome to episode one of Vreen versus Alberta, a special podcast series detailing the groundbreaking Supreme Court ruling that paved the way for equality for Canada's queer and trans communities. I'm your host, Darren Hagen. This series is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Queer History Project. In the history of the rights of sexual and gender minorities in Canada, there are some pivotal landmarks that altered everything that followed. This podcast will explore one of the most complex and significant moments in the nation's evolution towards enshrining equality for queer and trans Canadians. It's the story of how something as simple as a person being fired from a job could launch a human rights challenge that would wind its way all the way to the top court in the country. The story of how a community supported Delwyn Vreend after he was fired from his job at a religious college for being gay. It's the story of how a prairie city rallied behind one person to push back against the injustice of legislated homophobia, forever altering the legal landscape of Canada for its population of sexual minorities, and more broadly, for the country as a whole. 
But to fully understand how this historic Supreme Court decision changed the way we understand the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we will need to look back at the political and social reality of being a queer Canadian in the tumultuous decades leading up to the court challenge. This episode will revisit the culture of systematic discrimination facing Canada's queer and trans community and how the laws eventually began to evolve and make room for the possibility of change. We will also learn how, for decades after the decision, the government of Alberta challenged these new laws to preserve the status quo by suppressing queer equality to keep our community from fully participating in the vibrant life of this province, forcing us to remain in hiding or risk losing our homes, jobs, freedoms that many take for granted. Uh, well, my name is Frank Iacobucci, and I'm a retired Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. The history of same-sex relationships in Canada is relatively recent in terms of important changes that took place. You can go back to the 50s, and there was not much done from that decade. But in the 60s, you see the, emer the emergence of issues. Some will be familiar with the Clippert case, a man who was charged with criminal violations of indecent acts. And not only was he charged with the criminal violations, he was charged as a, a basically a dangerous offender. And that's, that was extremely important. And it, it led to his uh, conviction there was dissent in the 1967 Supreme Court decision, which spoke to the injustice of Clippert's landmark case. Chief Justice John Cartwright suggested that the sentence of preventative detention should be dismissed and that courts should clarify the existing laws. He said, in effect, understand, he could understand that he, he could be an offender, but why was he dangerous? Because the acts that he uh, allegedly committed were in private with consent, with the partner, and why was that dangerous? Now, that was an important event because along with other events, the bathhouse raids of people that many will be familiar with, uh, led to an, uh, an intervention by the then Justice Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, to say that the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nations. And that expression uh, took hold with a lot of people. There were demonstrations in Toronto. And uh, it led to then Justice Minister Trudeau changing the criminal code to eliminate the charge of buggery. And I, I, I dwell on that because that's all pre-charter. Activist and openly gay lawyer Doug Elliott already had years of activism under his belt in Toronto when the Vereen case came onto his radar. Doug Elliott would eventually go on to deliver a submission to the Supreme Court of Canada in support of Delwyn's case on behalf of the Canadian AIDS Society. He remembers many of the moments where gay rights were under attack in Eastern Canada. Well, I've been a gay activist for a long time. We had, in 1969, a great burst of hope with the criminal law reforms and the birth of the gay liberation movement with Stonewall. And in the early 70s, there was some progress. A lot of uh, groups were established to advance LGBT rights in Canada. But in the late 70s, there was quite a backlash. There were no other legal reforms. With rare exception, uh, the city of Toronto passed an anti-discrimination bylaw. The province of Quebec amended their human rights legislation. 
to include sexual orientation, but the law basically stalled in the 70s. And there was a huge backlash against us beginning around 1976 or so. Uh, some will remember in Montreal, Mayor Drapeau and the raids on the gay bars in Montreal to so-called clean up Montreal for the 1976 Olympics. There was the Emmanuel Jacques murder in Toronto. Uh, there was a huge backlash against our community that culminated with the bathhouse raids, which took place, uh, the huge ones in Toronto, where I came out to protest in 1981, but also uh, in other places like the Pisces uh, bathhouse in Edmonton that was raided also in 1981. Michael Fair is a longtime queer rights activist in Edmonton, as well as being the first openly gay politician elected in Alberta. For him, the question of equal rights protection forever changed his life when he was arrested as a found-in in the notorious bathhouse raids that swept across the nation. For me, and I think for uh, the, the broader community, um, uh, the pivotal point was uh, the bath raids of, of Pisces in 1981, uh, in the um, very end of May and early June. Um, it, it was a huge event because there were 53 of us, I think, that were arrested. Um, then the owners were arrested as well, as well as the people who were working there by the police. It was a, perhaps the largest mass arrest in Alberta before. Um, we were all uh, given, uh, we were charged with being found-ins, which is a criminal offense. We're told that uh, we would be interviewed. Uh, there was a judge or two there and somebody that works in the court, and a number of people were interviewed. I was not. They only interviewed about 10 or 12, and then they said everybody could leave, uh, which I did, and went back to where I had parked my car right by Pisces and, and drove home, and on the 7 o'clock news, the top of the news was the story about Pisces, the raids. I was like, oops, I think this is going to go on, because I thought I'd go home and take a nap and be fine, kind of thing, and that, and that wasn't going to happen. Dr. Christopher Wells is an activist and educator and the director of the McEwen University Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity. He remembers life before the Vreend decision. For many people, it was a dangerous time to grow up. It was to be visible, to make your, not only your identity, but your relationships part of the fabric of the city and, and province. That, and with uh, having to hide in the shadows, often comes a lot of shame and stigmatization with that and so I don't think we can ever underestimate the impacts not only of the overt homophobia of the time but also the internalized homophobia. You know, when you are afraid to hold your partner's hand because somebody might see that and that might mean you lose your job uh, because somebody suspects that um, you're gay, lesbian or bisexual. The reality was that discrimination against queer and trans Canadians permeated every level of our lives, even as the legal tide slowly changed direction. Small but significant advances showed that there was the possibility of hope on the horizon. In 1978, immigration laws were changed to prevent discrimination against gay immigrants, following a three-year battle led by gay activists from across Canada. But a watershed moment was the creation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And then there were other events taking place in that pre-charter period. Immigration law was changed to allow gay 
uh, individuals to come to Canada. They were a prohibited class. Quebec introduced legislation way ahead of anybody else on sexual orientation being a, a ground for uh, prohibited discrimination. So these were uh, uh, events uh, of the uh, pre-charter. But the real, the real uh, turning point uh, was the introduction of the equality provisions uh, of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which I believe the Charter was one of the outstanding contributions of Prime Minister Trudeau. Julie Lloyd is an Alberta Provincial Court judge and is one of the first openly gay or lesbian judges in the province. Before she became a judge, she was a lawyer based in Edmonton and was an intervener in the Supreme Court hearing on Vreen versus Alberta. Her activism began as she watched the world change while studying to become a lawyer. Because I was a queer person who went to law school, and when I was in law school, we learned a lot about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We, learned, we read those cases, we understood the legal machine, which is very different than the political machine. And so when I was a queer person going through law school, I was deeply optimistic. I was reading the cases, the decisions that the Supreme Court was handing down, not in queer issues directly, but generally speaking. And it was very hopeful. The, the, the power and enthusiasm for human rights that was rekindled through the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982 and 85 just was a, was a wildfire in the law schools. And so I came out early uh, in my professional experience with a, a North Star. And my North Star was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and my North Star was Section 15. And I had uh, and continue to have a, com a, a complete confidence that that is the most powerful tool that we have in this country to help minority folks. Canada's minorities now had a powerful tool for change. But on the list of marginalized Canadians that could now expect protection, sexual orientation was not expressly included in the equality provisions of Section 15 of the Charter. In 1982, when they uh, promulgated the Charter of Rights, they had refused to include sexual orientation as an express ground of protection, but the Liberal government in a compromise had left the list of protected grounds open-ended, uh, so there was a suggestion that perhaps sexual orientation was an included analogous ground. Um, so starting in 1985, once Section 15 came into effect, um, LGBT activists and their lawyers started taking governments to court, uh, but uh, up until 1992, uh, basically, uh, the cases had all failed. Um, the courts always agreed that sexual orientation was included under Section 15 as an analogous ground, but they always held that under Section 1 of the Charter of Rights that the discrimination against us was demonstrably justified, so we lost. In 1995, the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed that although sexual orientation is not expressly referenced in Section 15 of the Charter, it is analogous or equivalent to those other grounds listed in Section 15. This means governments in Canada are prohibited from discriminating against their citizens on the basis of sexual orientation. But the Charter applies only to governments and people acting on behalf of governments. 
Protections against discrimination by non-government actors are found in provincial and federal legislation, not the Charter. Legislation across Canada provides protection against discrimination on a variety of grounds. Quebec was an early champion, recognizing sexual orientation in its provincial protections as early as 1977, becoming the first jurisdiction in the world to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. Over the next 15 years or so, other provinces followed Quebec's lead. By the mid-1990s, human rights legislation in every province in Canada prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, except Prince Edward Island and Alberta. Opposition parties in Alberta proposed amendments to include sexual orientation. Those proposed amendments were defeated. The Alberta Human Rights Commission itself recommended including sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination. The Alberta government refused to accept that recommendation. The issue remained as to whether the decision by the Alberta government not to provide this protection constituted a breach of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, I've always thought of Alberta as the most difficult terrain in Canada for the LGBT community. Uh, it's always had uh, a much higher percentage of small C and big C conservatives. There's a big Bible belt in Alberta that is strongly connected to American evangelicals. And so it's always been very tough, I think, for the LGBT community in Alberta compared to, you know, Toronto or Montreal, for example. I have family and friends in Alberta, and <laughs> some of them are LGBT folks, and the ones who aren't are all very supportive. So I don't mean to suggest that everyone in Alberta is anti-LGBT, far from it, but I will just say that it, it came as no surprise to me that Alberta was one of the last provinces to have sexual orientation in their human rights legislation. And it also came as no surprise to me that there was uh, long-standing and very vocal opposition to adding that to the human rights law in Alberta. Independent Senator Paula Simons was a journalist working at the Edmonton Journal when the Vreen case wound its way through Canada's legal system. She recalls pre-equality Alberta clearly. Before the Delwyn Vreen decision, Alberta law was silent on the rights of people who were, what, what was the phrase they would have used, had a same-sex orientation. Uh, I mean, Alberta's human rights legislation, which was drafted in 1972 uh, under the sort of in the first years of the Peter Lougheed government, was groundbreaking in its time in 1972. But it was completely silent about the rights of queer Albertans or trans Albertans, even more silent. And so if you applied for a job, if you wanted to rent an apartment, if you wanted to make a reservation in a restaurant, it was absolutely not illegal in any way to be denied those services. The law wasn't explicitly discriminatory, but it provided no protection. Doug Stollery was one of the only openly gay lawyers in Edmonton when Delwyn Vreen's story came to his attention. He ultimately served as co-counsel when the case moved to the upper courts. For him, as for all gay activists, the gaps in protection for marginalized queer people could be felt on a personal level. The Alberta government made a conscious decision that human rights legislation should not include protections against sexual orientation discrimination. So that meant in Alberta, 
You could be fired from your job because you were gay. You could be refused employment on the basis that you were gay. Uh, you could be refused service in a restaurant because you were gay or lesbian. You could be uh, tossed from your apartment if, if your landlord determined that you were gay or lesbian. So that was the environment in, in Alberta at the time. My sense was that people were kind of like, well, you know, if you just kind of stay under the, you know, and not, don't make any noise or much of a fuss, people won't even notice you're around it. It's no big issue that no one bothers gays and lesbians. And there still was this perception that you didn't want to be noticed and you didn't want to be known that you were gay. And there were some real reasons for that, because at the time in Alberta, under the Individual Rights Protection Act, which was our, the act that the provincial government had brought in to, to ensure that people weren't discriminated against, it did not include gays and lesbians or trans, et cetera, uh, gender uh, within it. And so people like me could be fired from employment, I could be refused services, and I could be refused uh, housing in terms of apartments or whatever I wanted. So there was always that, that danger. And there were a number of people over the years that, in fact, were discriminated against publicly and what was very much a, a concern. Um, you could take nothing for granted. You could never be assured of your safety, your employment, or even the recognition of your relationships. But, you know, I think one of the greatest costs was uh, within ourselves, the, just the, the fight to overcome, you know, internalized shame and the internalized homophobia and the stigma that was still surrounding so many uh, people's perceptions or understandings of the, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual community. The Alberta government refused to include sexual orientation as a protected ground against discrimination in its human rights legislation, which was then called the Individual Rights Protection Act. So it remained up to the community to take up this cause, to sue the Alberta government under the Charter for an order requiring it to include protection against sexual orientation discrimination. I don't want to leave the subject with an impression that it was just courts who were the only agents for change. This is not the case. There were, most important aspects, a gay membership of those communities was crucially important. They're the ones that decided whether they would take cases to the courts. They were the ones that articulated why they should be recognized as equally entitled to the protection of the charter. They're the ones who were the clients of the lawyers, and they're the ones that I think sort of looked at it in a very much a incremental way, which I thought seeing it unfold over the decades, it was very strategic. They looked at the right to work. Why should someone be deprived of work because of his or her sexual orientation. Well, well, before before Breen's, we can go back to the LGBTQ purge that came in the you know the 1950s and 60s, where uh, LGBTQ people were driven out of uh, the military, police, any level of uh, government, and that that happened you know here in Alberta as well as across uh, Canada, and that continued on right until the, the 1990s, until Vreend basically said, right, this discrimination is illegal and it needs to stop. But here in Edmonton, when we, we, th we can think about 
Vreened and the community response is being sort of like a version of Alberta's Stonewall, where the community galvanized and, and fought back. And that had started uh, here in Edmonton. Dalwin's case was a long time coming because groups like um, GATE, Gay Alliance Towards Equality, GALA, Gay and Lesbian Awareness Association, the uh, Metropolitan Community Church, MCC, Dignity Edmonton, these LGBT community groups all had been fighting for basic inclusion on the grounds of sexual orientation into Alberta's human rights legislation for a long period of time. And then when Vreen's case came forward, they were ready. The community was ready. And um, uh, so there was, by the time you got to the Supreme Court of Canada, there were no guarantees as to which way this was going to go. And I think uh, that's another reason why this was uh, so significant uh, of a decision, a, a decision that just wouldn't change the landscape of Alberta, but would uh, shake and change the very foundations of Canada. On the next episode of Vreend versus Alberta. The King's College had zero written or, or even communicated policy on homosexuality. I think what there was was an expectation that everybody that served at King's would agree with a traditional understanding of marriage. And that Monday morning, the article comes out, and my name's in it, of course, and so is the King's College. Now they really had to deal with it because now they were in the public. The college board and president demanded that he uh, resign. And it's sort of shocking that we ended up firing Delwyn, which was wrong. It's just simply wrong to fire him. And I'm going, you know, I'm a union guy. Like, what the hell's going on with that? Why, how, can they, how can they do that? It was another thing that very quickly people organized around and said, all right, what can we do? And for, for them to fire him simply for being gay, it just didn't sit well with this old prairie ferry. It became very apparent to me at the beginning of my presidency that there was a deep hurt what this case did, it kind of lit the fire under the backsides of a lot of people because of the injustice of what happened. This episode of Vreen vs. Alberta is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Queer History Project. It was written, directed, and hosted by Darren Hagen. It was edited and chase produced by Andrew Paul. In this episode, you heard the voices of the Honorable Frank Iacobucci, Doug Elliott, Michael Fair, Dr. Christopher Wells, Julie Lloyd, Senator Paula Simons, Doug Stollery, Delwyn Vreend, Melanie Humphreys, and Joachim Seger. Special thanks to Doug Stollery, Cambridge LLP, Tories LLP, Cindy Davis, the Edmonton Public Schools Archives and Museum, the King's University, and Glass Bookshop. The music in Vreen vs. Alberta is written, composed, and recorded by Darren Hagen. Many thanks to our sound operators, Ariana Brophy, David Gallinger, and Andrew Paul. We'd also like to thank our production assistants, Kara Paul, Joanne Pierce, and Graham Loomer. You can learn more about Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org and check out more queer history by visiting the Edmonton Queer History Project at edmontonqueerhistoryproject.ca.